So I see abundance in the same way that once you understand that abundance is all around you, that it, like electricity, has uh, conduits, things that uh, fluctuate it, that you can really generate value from nothing. You don't need a million dollars in order to make a million, uh, two, two million. You better think, think, think about to Welcome to the Creative Leadership Podcast. My name is Mark. And my name is Rye. And today we're talking to Justin Leavenworth about abundance and changing the food production system. Can you tell us the story of your name? Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Justin Leavenworth. Um, my first name really isn't particularly interesting. I've asked my parents several times. And they were just like, I don't know. My brother is Benjamin and Matthew, so very clearly biblical. I think they just gave up on the third child and just went with Justin. I'm the oldest Justin I know. So even though Timberlake, Bieber have become famous, I don't, I've never met a 90-year-old Justin, so I always feel cutting edge. But my, my last name is quite interesting because Leavenworth in American uh, culture is uh, the most famous prison you can go to uh, if you're in the military. So if you murder someone or do a crime, you go to Leavenworth. So in many movies you'll hear, I'm going to go to Leavenworth. And so, uh, and so if you're, I'm on the east coast of the U.S., people ask if I was named after the prison. But on the west side, uh, there's a town in Leavenworth, Washington that was a railroad town that basically stopped being a railroad town and they reinvented themselves as a Bavarian village. So it has the largest Oktoberfest in the United States and everyone knows Leavenworth as Bavaria. So on the west coast, they asked me if I'm German. So it's a, a strange dichotomy. Both my name means something to people, but one is prison or Bavarian, which of course, Leavenworth has nothing to do with Bavaria. And could you introduce yourself? Uh, for example, what does your business card say? How would you introduce yourself on a, on a formal level? Yeah. Just as a side note, culturally, um, I was struck here in the Netherlands that when you meet people, you don't really ask people what they do. I found in the U.S., of course, very quickly, not only do we say, how are you doing or what you do, you ask someone, hey, Mark, what do you do? Hey, Rod, what do you do? You might even ask what their parents do. But in the Netherlands, they ask you about holidays. And I was always annoyed that my friends would kind of say, like, so what's your holiday? I'm like, I've already told you like 20 times. But in the Netherlands, they're more interested on what you do in your personal time. So what you do on a holiday is actually more interesting to them. And I thought about it that if you really ask people what they do on their vacation, it's a treasure trove of information. Like they love dogs, they go hiking, they love hotels, they're going to Slovenia. But it, it actually is a a much richer conversation because, of course, for the Netherlands, many times work is no indication of personal interest or future desire. I love it. Let's take a cue from that. We, so, we should yeah. change the script. Let's change yeah, yeah. the script. No, so, but tell, now, us, tell us about your vacation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what, my next uh, vacation, I think it's a good question. So I'm going to Rome uh, with my wife and my daughter, and it's my uh, 45th birthday and my fifth wedding anniversary. And uh, yeah, Rome is, I've never been to Rome. And I think Rome is one of those places you always say, oh, I'm going to go to Rome. And then I'm 45 and I've never been. So it was like, I got to go to Rome. So going to Rome, we always uh, stay in a very fancy hotel because with a two and a half year old, you see nothing. So if you have a nice hotel, uh, so we're staying at a beautiful hotel and uh, we've gotten a private tour of the Vatican at night. And I, I really like seeing historical things with no people around and also, yeah, yeah, the less people, the less, the, the more time and space. Mm. So we have a nighttime tour of the Vatican. So I'm really excited to uh, explore the Vatican and, and go to Rome. So a good example of the things I love. History, architecture, food, and Italy.
Mm, nice. Uh, and now, the formal question, the American question. Yes, yes. What do you, what do, do? you do? Yeah, yeah, interesting question. So, um, currently, I'm the director of customer experience at the Rainforest Alliance, which is a, a very new role. Uh, I was formerly the director of global markets for UTZ, or UTS. And if any Americans are listening, it's not the UTS potato chip company. It's actually uh, means good in uh, Mayan language. So originally it was a company called Uts Kapea, or Good Coffee. Uh, but many people don't know, but the Netherlands uh, was really the birthplace of fair trade. Uh, so uh, most Dutch people have read Max Havelaar, uh, which was a book written by a Dutch tradesman who saw this imbalance of trade. Um, and uh, the fair trade movement comes out of Max Havelaar, which was started here in the Netherlands. But uh, Oots uh, was a fair trade sustainable certifier and uh, for coffee, cocoa, tea, and hazelnuts. But we just merged with an American company called Rainforest Alliance that also uh, does coffee, cocoa, tea certification, but also does uh, forestry work. So um, we are now the largest certifier of sustainable fair trade coffee, cocoa, tea, bananas, palm oil. Uh, but also we have many projects around uh, biodiversity, community enhancement. Um, so we're more than 500 people around the globe. What was kind of interesting in the merger, first of all, this is one of the rare times where two nonprofits merge. It's also a rare time that an American nonprofit and a European nonprofit merge. Prior, UTS was very much in the Dutch model, which is trade, not aid. So the model was uh, we were a BV, a business, and we would donate all of our profits to a shtikting or, in American terms, a nonprofit. But we ran as a commercial business. So I was the commercial director. We had a P&L. We had profitability. Um, and our financial model is essentially a traceability system in which uh, farmers are certified and they put their coffee, cocoa, tea, into our traceability system, then companies buy those uh, commodities and we make a transactional fee off them. Incredibly uh, smart business model. Uh, Oots was created by business people who basically were looking to create a business-friendly uh, structure for fair trade, sustainably sourced products. And I found it a very interesting role because it was the first time I'd really seen NGO, a nonprofit that was really a business at heart, but operating and donating profits as, an, as, a, as a nonprofit, as we were at Stichting. Rainforest Alliance, uh, an organization based out of New York, uh, started roughly about 30 years ago, very much in the philanthropic mindset of Americans, which is, uh, you know, fundraising. Um, the, the business model was not around charging people for service. It was more about fundraising and doing uh, grant work. But over the years, uh, the certification business grew as ours did, and we became to be uh, with Fairtrade, Rainforest, and Oots, basically competitors. So uh, we merged in January of this year um, and are now in the process of uh, yeah, creating a new organization. Um, and my role shifted from being the commercial director for all of Oots to now uh, being uh, essentially creating a customer experience journey for the new rainforest. So, um, yeah, an, a shift of kind of focus, uh, but um, 
yeah, uh, and, and still continuing kind of commercial work within a nonprofit. Could you give us three reasons, three short bullet points of why you do what you do? Yeah, uh, bullet point one, um, people who do good things can also make money, right? So the concept that people make money are bad, people who do good things are poor. So one, I think that's a paradigm. I, I like helping people with the idea that if you believe in God, why would he want you to be poor, right? So that's bullet one. Uh, bullet two, I find that uh, teaching business practice is really uh, is, is, is what I know best. So teaching people the concept of business, much as someone would teach painting or art or coding. So I really enjoy teaching people the principles of business. And third, uh, it really focusing on abundance, that uh, I was really blessed with the ability to understand that abundance uh, is, is a mindset and that uh, teaching people that there is abundance uh, is, is really interesting. So I focus on people who like doing good things but haven't figured out how to make money doing it. Uh, I really focus on people who really need uh, help on understanding how to run a business, how to be a business. And third is how do you really take a mindset of abundance uh, with, with what you do. So we get to choose one of these reasons um, to ask you a bit more about. Which one do you think, Rod? I, I was really struck by the word abundance. Let's go for it. Abundance, why is that so important and what can people learn from that? Yeah. I think people have this idea that, first of all, abundance is a, is a, is money, right? So, uh, and that there's only a certain amount of money in the world. But if you realize that essentially uh, abundance is ever present, and yeah, uh, take Harry Potter, it didn't exist, and all of a sudden this single mother, who's poor, bankrupt, barely can pay her rent, goes into a coffee shop, creates a story. And now this is a multi-billion dollar enterprise. So where does that come from? It, it wasn't, there wasn't just a pile of money, a finite good idea pile, and she took it out of the good idea pile. So the idea that there's kind of uh, abundance is, is something that is uh, only available to certain people. And I think the, the re realization that creating value is something that can happen anywhere at any time from anyone uh, and that is, it isn't, uh, it's not something you learn in business school. It's not something that has scientific principles. And so this is, there's a great book called The Electric Universe, and it's really about how electricity was discovered. And the realization is most people who discovered electricity were actually trying to find God, right? So they thought all this magic in the air, and they're like, this has got to be God. But after a while, they began to realize that electricity has principles and works in certain ways. And if you control it, you can really generate electricity. So I see abundance in the same way, that once you understand that abundance is all around you, that it, like electricity, has uh, conduits, things that uh, fluctuate it, that you can really generate value from nothing. You don't need a million dollars in order to make a million, uh, two, two million. So, uh, but I find in general that uh, most people's lack of success comes from starting from a lack of abundance, or uh, I need to create abundance without the realization that's all around you. And so... I see most successful business entrepreneurs, innovators, uh, really have this belief that creation is, is, is all around you, that it's not, yeah, it's not a, a special skill. Or... And how does this help you in your business, in your business where, I mean, there's a 
there's definitely a finite amount of trees or or uh, coffee growers. Mm -hmm. Some of them are more sustainable than others. Some of them are not sustainable at all yeah. or not fair trade at all. How does this well, come into play there? I think, so uh, originally I went into agriculture saying I'm going to be a business person. I'm going to teach farmers how to be business people because they're not making any money. But it actually, the reverse thing happened. I learned more about business by understanding the laws of nature. And the first thing that nature teaches you is that in order for nature to be sustainable, it has to work in profit, right? So if you put something in, you need more than that energy to come back out. If you only put in enough to produce one of that equal, it won't continue. If you have to put in more than is what produced, eventually you run out of that. So you have to look at profitability, this idea that energy, what you put in, gives more back as a key model. And I think that's really where abundance is, is a key factor in abundance. And actually, if you go back, there are actually several uh, theologians uh, that basically were talking about agricultural and business as being more of a mindset uh, and wealth generation as being more around natural principles than as to, where's your business plan? Did you talk to your banker? Uh, can you show me how uh, you know your, your cash flow is going to work? But more really understanding about how, how are you, what is your plan for putting energy in and what comes out of it? So looking at abundance and profitability and then sustainability, they all really fit. So if you look at most agricultural models, uh, they are not built to be sustainable, nor are they really built to be abundant because, yeah, uh, the, the factors are one that agriculture is a man-made creation. It, it is our own desire to create monoculture uh, and so that... Uh, loses on the fact that abundance of agriculture comes from soil. So looking at uh, soil and soil management and all of that becomes a bigger play with farmers than talking about just sheer productivity. So having a conversation with farmers around productivity and how it relates to profitability, because one of the core factors that we currently do is we actually teach farmers also the finances of it. So the kind of go local, little, little tiny farmer really isn't a sustainable model for agriculture. So. Uh, the other thing I found very interesting, I had the, the impression that what people in the farming uh, in our agriculture industry lacked was knowledge. What I found in general is that, uh, first of all, especially in American culture, the farmer has always been seen as this noble figure. Like, they are the highest standard of person. They're hardworking, they're diligent. Um, Thomas Jefferson does a, a big diatribe about kind of the, the true American is a farmer. So we have this ideal of what a farmer is, and people have many ideas of what uh, the notion of what a, a farmer is. But the reality is that a farmer's life is, is struggle. And many farmers I, I describe as someone uh, hitting their head against the wall, and you say, why are you doing that? And they say, because when I stop, it feels good. Right? So the struggle of a farmer is many times part of the aspiration of a farmer. In America, it became trendy for you to kind of give up your Google job, your Harvard education, and farm and be a sheep farmer, make cheese, and be a local artisan. And you'd be like, you know, why? But it was this meaningfulness of like toil and struggle. And so a lot of the uh, principles of business, of planning, efficiency, start to lose way when really the decision making is around emotion and you know I want to do things that make me feel like I'm struggling. So uh, there's there've been quite of uh, you uh, yeah you really have to better understand the mindset of the farmer.
one of the projects when I came to the Netherlands was I was asked to put together a accelerator for uh, farm tech, food, food tech. And I was really struck with the fact that there are many technology people have all these great ideas on how to revolutionize farming, but have no clue on really what the farmer is and the fact that they're slow adapters, there's no money in farming, so who's going to pay for it? And so really innovating in agricultural space and creating it has two main problems. The fact that most people don't really know how farming is and the farmers themselves are quite hard to shift because yeah, their life is really based in their family, their land, their, their culture. So there's, there's a lot of challenges to it. It seems like there's a, a bit of a, a story or a perception like you describe about what the farmer is, the hardworking person, but is that still true today? My understanding is like 90% of farming is now uh, done by uh, machines and is uh, controlled by, by big conglomerates. Uh, what, do, what does farmer mean today? Well, I, I think if we went on the street and said, you know, describe a farmer, they're like, yeah, it's a man with a wife and kids and they, they live on it. And how accurate would that description be? Yeah, well, inaccurate. And you'll see that people became trendy to say family farm. Well, every farm is a family, right? But, you know, this family owns you know, 10,000 hectares of farm. Um, I think that the, there, there's, there is an idealized notion of a farmer. Uh, I think the reality is that if you look at the power balance within the agricultural supply chain, the farmer is the one that has least power, least finances. And, you know, farming is not necessarily a choice. Uh, it was either part of a family culture. It's the only thing they can do. And the reality is the money that's being made within food and food production and agriculture production is much more farther up the supply chain. So um, those farmers that are financially successful move up the supply chain. So they end up owning their transportation, their distribution, and then maybe retail. Um, just as an example, uh, the first state in the United States to create a cooperative where dairy farmers came together to set a price for milk, they were all arrested for basically you know, a monopoly. But the principle of farmers coming together, putting their money together, creating a business was kind of like, well, that's not what farmers are allowed to do. Now, many cooperatives not only manage the supply, but also own a brand. So Welch's grape juice in the United States is actually owned by a grape growing, but they have a business side of it. So your notion of, uh, I don't know, what's ocean spray cranberry? Oh, it's a cranberry farmer. Well, it's a cooperative that is owned that has a very big multi-billion dollar business kind of stuff. So I think in general, when people get down to farming, they really think at a micro level, but at a macro level, I mean, it's not necessarily in each industry is very different, whether it's machine or not. But, um, yeah, this kind of idealized family farmer is there. There's a lot of uh, data around, oh, farmers are really old. Well, the reality is most, your, you know, your father's the farmer and then you are on their farm. But until he passes on, you don't inherit the farm. So there's a natural data point that, you know, unless you buy your own land, which can be either impossible or too expensive, you're waiting to take over your family's land. So, yeah, so I think in general, uh, to give a better answer, if we went through a particular sector commodity, I could kind of dispel myth. But, um, yeah, I mean, I would give you an example, like in the cattle industry, in order to make a livelihood, uh, you need, let's say, at least 500 head of cattle. In the U.S., on average, a cattle rancher has less than 100. 
So it, it's really more about the image of having the hat and the belt buckle and the truck to say you're a rancher than it really is a business. It's not really a livelihood, which really fuels the business that most sort of people are doing it as a hobby or as a community, so they're not driven by financial mechanisms. So one thing we talk quite a bit about is understanding the uh, ecosystem in which a farmer lives to understand what incentivizes them financially, because it isn't purely money. It may be community, it may be, you know, the local area. So uh, let's say in tea, most tea farmers come to, an, uh, yeah, uh, they, they have a joint place where all tea is auctioned. Is it where they get the best price? No, but it's part of the fabric of the community to all come there, bring your tea, have a conversation, sell your tea. And if you said, hey, I can have you sell straight to market, you'll make more money, then you would miss out on this ecosystem they live in. It's so interesting because you're describing this notion of, I mean, we talk about it as systems change or systems mapping or um, uh, this notion that if you just take one view of, in this case, farming, and just of the supply chain, you would have a very analytical way of going about it. And you might be completely wrong because you're missing all these clues that don't have anything to do with the financial system but maybe with the social system or with something that motivates people in another way yeah. so how do you how did you go about finding all this out and 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 how do you go about helping other people understand this because i'm sure that most people go um, have this idealized version of a farmer or even the standard economic rationale of why a farm would be in a supply chain yeah. it would miss out on many of these aspects so how did you find it out yourself and how do you, how do you take others on board yeah i mean for me my journey started in 2005 so my background is in linguistics and cultural anthropology i was a cross-cultural consultant for 10 years essentially helping corporations better work globally but I, was, I read the book Omnivore's Dilemma and, and recognized that I knew very little about where my food came from. Uh, my, my spirit animal is a dog. My bliss has is, is always been, you know, yeah, put me in front of a dog. My brain goes numb and I'm a very happy person. And I realized there was a dilemma of what's the difference between this steak in front of me and my smiling dog. And, you know, if you watch enough Disney films, they talk, they have families, they drive cars, they wear clothes. So what's my relationship with animals? Because of my background being in anthropology and archaeological, uh, and I was a big fan of um, Joseph Campbell, this whole idea of how do we connect with animals and nature, and, and essentially we have now are disconnected with nature, so we don't really understand. So I, I started with this question with, you know, if I, if I truly care about animals, I should be involved in the killing of them. That was kind of the hunter nature of, yeah, you go and kill them, but you honor them, you respect them, and you appreciate them. Where, you know, a McDonald's $1.99 hamburger isn't respectful, and, and there's no correlation to the animal. Um, so I got involved in the meat industry, uh, and uh, was really about creating the most sustainable meat supply possible, so that I would basically feel like when you ate that steak, you would say, everything was done run. Right. Uh, to the fact that we got involved with Temple Grandin, who is an autistic woman who uh, helps design slaughter facilities on understanding the fear of animals. 
um, you know, the, the basic byproducts of the slaughterhouse would go into a pool of worms that would eat it and turn it into fertilizer. I mean, every angle that we could think of, we created, created that. So I think um, I was really like, I've created the best product in the world, put it in front of a consumer, and they're like, yeah, I could care less. And it was an interesting uh, dilemma for me because when I tried to educate the consumer on why this was so good, they're like, ew, gross. I don't want to know about how you kill the animal. I don't want to know about how worms eat it. I, I just want a label, something that says it's fine, and, and I, I, I want to get out of it. Um, and I, I recognize in general that the, if we were really going to create really humane systems, that uh, creating your best product and trying to bring it to market wasn't necessarily uh, what the con what was going to change consumer mindset. So then I decided that I wanted to work with the conventional meat buyers. Uh, so, uh, in, for example, in the U.S., um, people tell me these numbers they can't put their mind around, but you know we harvest uh, 160,000 head of cattle a week, right? So, if you add up pigs, chickens, cows, everything, we harvest almost a billion animals a year. I mean, just huge scale uh, processing. So then the thought was, well, you know, how do I then create better efficiency in that side of it? So then I, we created a program that was designed for Walmarts, the Costco's, uh, the idea that what, that you would go to McDonald's one day and see the sustainable grass-fed hamburger, right? No market for that either. And so then that was kind of like, okay, <laughs> you know, where, where can I create um, the change needed in it? And both times I wasn't with the consumer. I was either working at farm level creating the product or I started working with the distributors. But I always like the saying, he who owns Rome owns the Colosseum. The idea that fundamentally public perception, public support, no matter how powerful the empire, unhappy people, problems, happy people, you can, you can rule. So that was the idea of actually coming to think uh, I moved to the Netherlands uh, two years ago, and I said, I, I'm, I'm just too close to this, and I don't really understand what the consumer wants. Or, And I thought the design thinking, really coming from a customer-centric standpoint, how would I do design thinking for, uh, for food? My project here at Think was actually supermarket disruption, because I recognize that fundamentally supermarkets are still a Byzantine model, right? You bring a lot of products to a center square and hope people buy it. But supermarkets have 3% net margins. And from your consulting business, you would realize that's horrible, right? Um, and uh, they are big, expensive aircraft carriers that can't change and move very quickly. They're susceptible to gluten crazes. And, you know, now I want gluten. I want fat-free. No, I don't want fat-free. So they're always really struggling uh, to adapt their model. Uh, they're throwing away 30% of the food because they have to put a lot of food out there. Within food food and beverage, uh, which is a $3 trillion industry, yeah, less than 3% is online, so there's no efficiencies there. And so I was really interested in saying, okay, how do I look at supermarket disruption? How do I look at consumers and, and how they sell as really impacting the supply chain? Uh, and uh, I then through Think and my project, created a, 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 a project that connected children and families to retailers to make better choices. Also very interesting to realize that uh, people see supermarkets as their living rooms. So 
part of educating your child around food and culture is the supermarket. So there's this really also uh, challenging issue that food is family, food is culture, and food is politics. All of that is wrapped up in retail, all of that's wrapped up into the supply chain, all of that's wrapped up in agriculture. So that's when the job opportunity was to work for a nonprofit that is working at advocacy government level, working with retailers, working with farmers. It seems like a perfect fit of saying, okay, how can you really create a visible consumer-facing product that is about really kind of getting what consumers want? Blue label, good. Red label, bad, right? Uh, and also the fact that you need organizational change, governmental policy. Uh, you need to work with farmers. So, yeah, I, I always say there are very few people that have worked at every aspect of this process um, uh, to really try to understand how to change it. But And I, believe me, I'm nowhere close to coming with a solution at this point. You had mentioned uh, Joseph Campbell. I'm curious where where you are right now on your hero's journey. <laughs> yeah, no, I I, um, I always use that example, and uh, I I think actually you know my hero's journey you know when I was here at Think. Uh, so I like in the hero's journey. There's always that older person, and if David Rosenberg is hearing this, it's he's not the older person, but he is. But you know I knew there was going to be someone that through Think. Uh, would introduce me to my next project, and that tended to be David Rosenberg, who was one of the founders of Oots. But I, um, I was introduced to to this challenge. I think, for me, uh, I was, I was hired in to be a leadership team member into an organization merging, and there were a lot of ego triggers around. You know, I'm this big important guy. You know, I need to, yeah, I need to really. Uh, go out there and, and it was a very singular journey. So the last two years have been quite difficult, have been a, quite a lot of uh, learning experience on how not to do things. So after the merger, uh, I was not chosen to lead the, the, the markets department, the commercial department, and they said, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I'm really fascinated with this customer experience that uh, companies now are uh, I've been in marketing for 25 years. I'm a dinosaur. People don't market the way you used to. It's data-driven. Okay. Today, customer experience is really driving business. And I recognize that uh, the next part of my hero's journey was kind of moving on to recognizing that even NGOs need to understand that everyone is expecting a customized, personalized journey that is consciously improving and so I'm quite interested. I, I believe I'm probably one of the only NGO with the title of customer experience. And it was a huge push to convince an NGO even to have the name customer and customer experience. But I, I think one of the struggles was I used to talk about you know uh, profit uh, as, as kind of a motivator. Within an NGO world, we talk about impact. So I had to really think about, I really struggled in an NGO where I talked about revenue and profits. People said, ugh. Why do I want to listen to you? <laughs> and I realized that uh, in organizations that have purpose, uh, you don't talk profit, but you talk performance. So really, uh, I'm in my hero's journey really looking at how do you take an organization that has purpose, how do you create an individual's connection to their individual purpose, to their organizational purpose, and then how do you really improve performance? And I must say it's pretty exciting to kind of reformat and continue my hero's journey within an organization that, you know, uh, yeah, to a certain degree kind of didn't choose me to, to lead it, 
but now I have a new journey trying to really reshape and still really affect it and really help, helping it kind of still stick to my three things. You know, how do you, how do you really generate money? Um, how do you realize that, that the business principles of if you don't really develop good customer service, people aren't going to continue with you? And also this abundance that I see really customer experience about if you care about your employees, they care about their customers. And if you care about your customers, you will generate abundance. So it, it's... Uh, yeah, it's the beginning of this new hero's journey called the customer experience. Nice. I hear the weather changing, Mark. It is time for our lightning round. <laughs> and uh, in our lightning round, we, uh, we like to ask a few questions about your, um, uh, starting with, do you have any recommendation for the listeners about some cultural experience you've, uh, you've had recently? It could be a museum, a book, a piece of music, a movie, a TV show. I laugh because I have a daughter who's two and a half, and I, I can't remember the last time I had brain power to read a book or go to a movie. Um, generally, evenings are my wife and I watching some horrible Netflix show just to... That's that's know. great, but, too. Um, I mean, maybe there are people out there in the same position as you <laughs> who would love to hear that, that recommendation. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, uh, I was in Berlin, and um, I don't know if if you've ever been to the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, but I think it's one of the most uh, powerful experiences, if you really experience it. I see too many people kind of walk in it, but uh, if you've never been there, it's basically one shape that from the outside looks like, okay, there's yeah variations to it. But as you go in, the artist has undulated the ground, so there's valleys and, and, and levels. But as you go into it, uh, you start to become kind of confused, disoriented. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was really struck with the power of an artist that could really encapsulate, well, how would you make a memorial to the Holocaust that what's captured it? So it really, to me, is powerful in terms of capturing at, at a certain point, it's forever. So you realize the, 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 the gravity, the scale of the Holocaust. Uh, at a certain point, it's a very uh, feeling of fear and uh, alone and yeah, despair, and um, and and then there's you know also the feeling of going through it and walking out and realizing yeah you can leave it behind you, but how do you kind of relive that? So I, I try to go there. Uh, I go there every time, and every time I have this really experience. So my advice to you is: if you're in Berlin, go to the Holocaust Memorial by the Brandenburg Gate and really take time to go and experience it. Yeah, it's a great one. Absolutely. And then uh, finally, um, a ritual, a daily practice, some kind of thing that you do at a regular basis to yeah. help you perform. <laughs> PG, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, my, my wife always is quite mad because I wake up every morning happy. And I, I don't, you know, I, so it's not necessarily a ritual, but there's a recognition of gratitude. Like I really always wake up every morning going, I, I feel grateful. Uh, and that's something, um, I remember I was 17. I was sitting in our, at our, on our family's yard and I just realized, yeah, what else could I ever want? But, um, there was a, a Google executive on face. There was a viral video, but basically it was this kind of idea that happiness comes from expectation you know if you expected to be a billionaire and you're not you're upset if you didn't expect to be a billionaire but 
that, that constant checking in on are you grateful for what you have because it's very easy. So I, I, I really think uh, practicing gratitude, um, you know, admiring your surroundings and being grateful recently, I had a, you know, kind of a health scare and it really it reminds you that sometimes you don't appreciate being in good health and you quickly move to stress, work, the house isn't clean, but yeah. So that's my daily rituals, express, you know, really express gratitude in the mornings. Excellent. A great tip for everyone. Thank you. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you very much. This was the Creative Leadership Podcast. My name is Mark. And my name is Rod. Thanks for listening.